You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. All right, our passage today comes from John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Thank you, Katie. Let us, before we continue, just bow our heads first and begin our prayer together. Our Father, you are sovereign over all things. You spoke matter into existence. You reign over time and space. You have all authority and dominion and power. And we have your ear. And you've set your love on us. Who who are we that you are mindful of us, that you care for us, yet you've numbered every hair on our head and you hear us when we pray? God, my heart today, my prayer, is that you would ignite a flame in our hearts, a passion to be a people of prayer, who call upon you, God, to move and act in our lives and in our time that we would partner with you in the redemptive and powerful things that you are doing all around us and in the world. Give us a vision for prayer, how indispensable prayer is in our life and in our ministry. God, make us a people who are passionate about prayer so that we can see your glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The longer that I follow Jesus in my life, I'm beginning to be convinced of the centrality of prayer, how prayer is just central to everything that we're doing. And there's much that can be said about prayer. I'm preaching on prayer today. There's a lot we could talk about. We could talk about prayer as dependence. That's, that's not really what, what, I'm, what, we're, what we're preaching about today. We could talk about prayer as fellowship with the triune God. That's not really what we're talking about today. We could talk about prayer as a transformative experience. That's not really what we're talking about today. Today, we're talking about praying towards an answer, praying towards a reply, a response from God. Now, we're talking about answer prayer today. And as, as Baptists, okay, uh, you know, we, I think we struggle with prayer. We pray very small prayers typically, like, you know, pray for my cousin's toe, that, that, that he do better, you know, we, or, or as reformed, a reformed community, people who believe in reformed doctrine, we're often very pious in our prayers, which has a time and place, no doubt about it, but there's one element or attitude that I think is usually missing from reformed Baptists, and it's to pray big, bold, audacious, anticipatory prayer to hope and pray that God would move and respond to our prayers. I don't think we usually pray like that. And I think the reason why is because we don't understand what prayer essentially is. Jesus in this passage, I think, models for us the kind of prayer, the person of prayer that God wants to partner with so that he can be glorified. Now, the wrong way, I think, to read this passage, Katie just read this passage, you know the story that we just went through last week, we're unpacking it a little more today. I think the wrong way to analyze and interpret this prayer is, well, of course Jesus knew that God would respond to his prayer. Of course Jesus knew that God would do what he's asking, he is God in flesh, he's divine, and of course there are times where Jesus taps into those divine resources that he has because he is God in flesh, but we forget 
that Jesus, for the great majority of his life, lived, accepted the human limitations of his experience. And he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. He walked in sensitivity to the Father's will as he communed and walked in the Spirit. Jesus' human limitations, his life of prayer, his confidence going before the Father, it's a model for us because that's our human limitations too. And because we have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us, we have the potential to walk in the power of the Spirit, walk in sensitivity to the Spirit, knowing the Father's will and calling upon the Father to do what he has willed. And so this really is a model for us, this model prayer of Jesus. So we have three points today. Uh, I think this will be a long sermon. I have a lot to say. This, my heart as a pastor is just invested into the sermon because I want us here at Citizens Church to be a people of prayer. If we don't pray, we are nothing. If we don't pray, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. My, my heart is that we would be a people of prayer. And so we have three points today. The second point has three sub-points and there are some details in those points that we'll get to. And uh, there's a lot of scripture references today. They won't always be on the screen, but I'll just be using them to illustrate and, and make some points that I want to make today. And just as a disclaimer, because I'm talking today, we're talking today about answered prayer, how God answers prayer, praying in such a way where we can be confident that God will respond and, aff- and affirmatively respond. Disclaimer, I hate the prosperity gospel. And there's a type of prayer, a type of mindset that says if we have enough faith, if we do, if we give enough money, if we perform morally in our righteousness, whatever, then God has to follow through on our, our requests and our demands. And I don't think that's biblical. We're talking today about biblical prayer. Jesus modeling a way to pray that still has anticipation, expectation that God moves for his glory. And so with that said, let's start with our first point today, which is prayer. Jesus models prayer is infused with gospel confidence. Prayer is infused with gospel confidence. Verse 41, go there. Jesus lifted up his eyes towards heaven. Hopefully, that, I don't know if that's in verse 41. Maybe I put the wrong one, but you can see it wherever it's at in, in the story there. It says, Jesus lifted up his eyes towards heaven. Now, this is describing somebody, a person, who has confidence standing before God, standing on earth, looking to heaven, about to make a bold request of heaven. That's some confidence. Verse 41, Jesus, we often pass by this small detail, but it's very important. He says, Father, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Now, no Jew would disagree that God is their father. That's made very clear throughout the whole entire story of the Bible. This is implied in the fact that he is creator, he is father. But nowhere in our entire Old Testament does any one person ever call God their father by name, praying to him personally, calling him father by name. But Jesus in the Gospels calls God his father a total of 170 times. No one before did that, but Jesus does that, looking to heaven and saying, Father, and then, you know, the prayer, he expects something to happen. He's, he says, remove the stone. Father, I give you thanks that you're going to do this for me. I mean, Jesus, you analyze what he's doing here. It is just soaked in confidence. And so the question we have to ask is what gives Jesus the right to approach God, call him father, assume that he has the father's ear, then proceed with prayer that is filled with confident expectation What gives Jesus the the right to do such a thing? And it's the fact that he is the son, the perfect son. The only person who can confidently stand before God as father and make request of him is the son. Now, Adam, Israel, David, they were all called God's sons. Each one of them turned away. Each one of them betrayed God. Each one of them, in a way, were alienated from God and experienced death. Now, listen. God has revealed himself as father. Before before any other thing, God wants us to know that he is a great father. And so as with that father's heart, he welcomes back the prodigal always. He wants the prodigal to return. But that relationship, us with God, it's fragmented and broken when there is sin, when there is betrayal. And so we, each and every single one of us, 
were purposed for relationship, father-child relationship with God, but we were born guilty, and then we choose to oppose God's law. So here's what happened. We traded our birthright. We were destined to be sons and children and daughters. We were destined for that, but instead we became God's enemies. And so Ephesians 2 says that we're not children of God, we're children of wrath. John 9 says that we're not children of God, but when we love sin and love the darkness, we're children of the devil. And so in our alienated state from God, we have no reason to approach God with any confidence, with any confident expectation, because the relationship is fragmented by sin. This is why Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, classic story, he sees God Almighty, holy, holy, holy God. And he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He knows that he does not belong. There is zero confidence for Isaiah the prophet in that moment. But what happens? You know the story, don't you? An angel is sent by God to take a coal from the altar and touch his lips and consecrate Isaiah, taking away his guilt and atoning for his sin. And that is the beeline to the gospel. That is the foreshadowing of what Jesus does for each and every single one of us. When Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross... He atones for our sin, removes our guilt, consecrates us to the Father, reconciles us to the Father, and makes us children of God. And so he switched his status with us. We were alienated. We were far off. He was the dear son, and he switched that status. And so now we are sons, daughters, children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, He was made sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. That's what you are now in Christ. You are the very righteousness, perfection of God that's revealed in Jesus. Jesus infused that into you, transferred that to you. So now your status is not separated. It's not uh, lost. Your status, my status, is we are children of God Almighty. And so we should approach God the same way Jesus did, right? We're reconciled to God, children of God, and children can speak to their father with confident expectation. They have no fear. Children have no fear of being cast out. They're forever in the father's favor and love. And I think we forget that this means that we have access and approachability, the same kind that Jesus had. So we ought to approach God with boldness and confidence. That's my point. Prayer is infused with gospel confidence. We are sons and daughters. Our Father loves us. We always have open invitation. He is a good Father who will never turn His face away from us because He did that to His very own Son, so we, He would never do that to us. Hebrews 4 says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, it says, to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Romans 8 says that the Spirit's been put within us, the Holy Spirit of God has been put within us, who cries out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The disciples in Luke chapter 11, when they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, Jesus, teach us how to pray, he says, when you pray, say this, Father. We ought to approach God Almighty as our personal Father because we are co-heirs with Christ given His status by the cross. So there's no reason to be bashful. There is no reason to be timid when approaching God. And listen, the, 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 the normal experience for Christians is to sin, be filled with doubt and shame, and think that they cannot approach God even a moment after they have sinned until they clean themselves up a little bit. But that's not a father. A father would wrap up his kid right there in the moment. The enemy, he wants you to be a person who doesn't pray. He wants to be a person who never approaches the throne with boldness and confidence. He, that's what he wants for you. He wants you to think that your sin separates you. It doesn't. And it never will ever again because Jesus traded places with you. So we have entrance. Our prayer life should be characterized by gospel confidence. 
But now that we have entrance, the question is, what do we do now? As we, as we approach God our Father, what do we pray? How do we pray? I think Jesus shows us that as sons, as children, we ought to pray with great expectation. Prayer is infused with great expectation. Look at verses 41 and 42. Let's look at this prayer. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, in verse 41, underline that first word, heard. It says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. That word heard, okay, let's get a little technical here. Okay, stay with me. This is really important, though. It's, it's in the aorist tense in the Greek, which refers to a completed past action. So Jesus is saying, Father, you've already heard me. You've already acknowledged my prayer. And then he continues in verse 42 and says, I knew that you always hear me. Now that word here, there, underline that again. You don't need to remember this. I'll just tell you. It's in the pluperfect tense. Pluperfect, not something. Which refers to a past action's consequence that's already been done in the distant past. So Jesus is saying, I know you've already heard me this one time, Father. You've already heard my prayer. He's confident about that. And he says, that's the constant relationship I've always enjoyed with you. You've always heard me. He's looking back in his life. Jesus here is looking back and saying, I know you're going to give me an answer to this prayer, that you're going to respond to this prayer right here now, God, because you've heard me, because you've always heard me. I've seen you answer prayer time and time again. That's what Jesus is saying here in this prayer. And when you see the word here, God, I know you hear me, that means more than just that he's, it's been audibly registered in heaven. <laughs> it means that it's been heard, it's been acknowledged, and it's been responded to. So I'm using D.A. Carson's commentary on John, and he says this about prayer, this prayer of Jesus. The prayer here assumes that Jesus has already asked for Lazarus' life, and that all he must do is thank his Father for that answer. Great expectation. Jesus' prayer life is filled with great expectation from God, his Father. Now, how is it possible to have great expectation? I think Jesus shows us. John chapter 5, 19 says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does Likewise, and again, the wrong, the wrong way to read that is, of course, Jesus knows what the Father wants him to do. Of course, Jesus knows what the Father's will is. He's God in flesh. Remember, Jesus chose to walk in the limitations of the human experience, relying upon the Spirit, sensitive to the Father's will through his communion with God through the Spirit in Scripture. What Jesus enjoyed, that sort of confidence of the Father's will, knowledge of the Father's will, is enjoyed for you and I too. We can enjoy that too. John 16 says this, when the spirit of truth comes, which you have if you are a follower of Jesus, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Incredible. So we have the Father's will written for us, plain as day in his scripture. And now that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, walking with the Spirit, we read God's will plain as day, and the Spirit takes that truth, takes God's will, takes what He is passionate about that's been revealed clearly, and impresses that down deep into our bones, deep into our heart, deep into our DNA, so that what naturally overflows from us in prayer is what God wants us to pray, what He's passionate about, what He wills, what He loves. That is how we pray with great expectation. We know what the Father wants to do. We know that He wants to move. We know He wants to advance His kingdom. We know what He wants, so we pray what He wants with great expectation. 
That's why Jesus can go before God and say, remove this stone. Father, I thank you that you hear me. You've always heard me. Lazarus, come out. Jesus prays the great expectation, and so should we. Jesus says, you've heard me. You've always heard me. We should be able to say the same thing in our lives. Prayers filled with great expectation. So now I want to spend some time on those subpoints I was talking about. Uh, teaching on how exactly to pray with great expectation, because I think we have to be mature about this. So I have three subpoints here. Uh, as I move through them, they're listed in the order of degree of certainty. Okay? So I think there's one way to pray that we know we will always get a yes. And there's another way to pray, I think, that we know we will always get a yes. But there's some clarity there that we need to have, some, uh, some concessions we need to make to be mature about that. And there's a third way to pray, I think, which isn't always a yes, but I think we can have a hopeful optimism even still, okay? So firstly, okay, first way we pray with great expectation is we contend <clears throat> for God's promises, Prayer is us contending with God for his promises. And I use that word contending purposefully because prayer is like wrestling with God. It's all at once weak and bold. It's all at once desperate and strong. And I think we have a number of stories in our Bible that illustrate this kind of prayer, contending with God for him to do what he has promised. I think of when God visits Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, God is already in covenant with Abraham. He's already told Abraham, I will make you a great nation and you will bless all these other nations. And God visits Abraham with two other angels in that story, Genesis chapter 18. And he tells, he, he kind of speaks aside with the angels and says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And so God sets out to go and judge and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't know the story in Genesis chapter 18. And it's very interesting what happens next. Abraham goes before God and intercedes for that wicked city. And he talks God down, saying, God, there's 50 righteous people, will you spare? God, if there's 45 righteous people, will you spare? If there's 40 people, will talks God all the way down to 10 people. What's Abraham doing there? He's blessing all nations as he was supposed to. That's his role, to be a blessing to the nations as an intercessor between God and man. That's, that's Abraham's job. And the point of the story is, Abraham could have talked God down to one, <laughs> but he stopped short. He stopped at 10. Or think of when Moses pleads with God to spare Israel after Israel just absolutely shows their infidelity through idolatry to God. He says to God, don't destroy them. <laughs> don't destroy Israel because you've promised this people that you will make them into a great nation that blesses all other nations. You must do what you have promised God. That's what he says. Or think about the prophets in the Old Testament. Solomon, King, Daniel, Jeremiah, constantly pleading with God to bring people, to bring Israel out of exile, back to the land, to protect them in the land. Why would they pray and plead with bold expectation and confidence? Because God said that's what he would do if they prayed. <laughs> because God, that, that's what God says he would do if they repented and cast themselves on him. Or think about this, when Jesus, the night he's betrayed, he tells Peter, Satan has asked for you, Peter, that he might sift you. But I'm praying for you, Peter, that when you fall, you may be restored. I think Jesus there is praying with, with expectation that Peter's going to be restored. And do you know why I think that? This is because in Matthew chapter 16, he has said, the gates of hell will not, pre will not prevail against the church. And Peter, you're part of that. So got, Jesus already knows. Jesus already knows what, what God is going to do. And so he asks God to follow through on his promises. So all throughout the Bible, God's people have contended with God for him to follow through on his promises. Now, that might sound outrageous to you. That might sound way too bold for you. But only, that, that's only strange if you fail to remember that we are in covenant with God. 
And when you're in covenant with somebody, that relationship is different from all other relationships. I'm in covenant with Rebecca, and so she has every right, she's actually entitled every night to ask me to give her a foot rub, and she does. Now, if one of you did that, that'd be weird, and that'd be strange, because we're not in covenant. But me and my wife are in covenant, and so she talks to me differently. She has expectations of me that you wouldn't have of me. It's because that covenant relationship means there's, there's uh, an expectation built into the relationship. God has pledged us certain things. God has made promises to his people, and it is his will that we lay hold of those promises in prayer and call upon him to do what he has said he would do. And like Moses, we should feel free to say, God, you've promised this. You've said you would do this. It's not my reputation on the line here, God. It's your reputation on the line here. God, do, please, God, do what you said you would do. It's remarkable. We're invited to pray to God, our Father, and plead with him to be who he is and do what he has said he would do. Now, not just anyone can come to the Oval Office and ask the president for a favor, unless you're his child, because the president's then your dad, and the one who wields the most, most power in the world, the globe. You have his ear. One pastor I read once describes prayer as reverse lightning. I love that picture. Think about that. A few months ago, uh, one of our trees in our, our backyard was struck by lightning. It was the loudest thing I've ever heard. Huge crack. And for weeks after, I was finding shreds of tree, shrapnel of tree all throughout the yard. God has thundered down to earth in an incarnation, revealing who he is and what his will is. And now he's inviting us to thunder back to heaven, reverse the lightning, to plead with God and ask him to move. So what are the promises of God that he's made to you? This is why it's really important to know the scripture. It's going to enhance your prayer life. It's going to empower and define and shape your prayer life. So what are the promises of God for you? Do you know them? Let me give you a few. Let me give you a few here. What are we contending for? Romans 8, all things work out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean for all things to work out? To be conformed the image of his son. God's promised you that he will make you like Jesus. Philippians 1, he who began a good work will carry it out till the day of completion. God promises to transform you and to never abandon you. John 15, we're told, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Abide in me and you will have answered prayer. Abide in me and God's joy will dwell in you. Think about 2 Chronicles 7, What we read this morning together, he says, ask and I'll give the nations to you. Now that was originally for Israel, but you know what? That's been accomplished in Jesus by his blood, by his death, by his resurrection. He has ransomed a global people for himself. And now that is realized, brought to fruition by our partnership with God through prayer and obedience. The nations are promised Luke 11, Jesus says, ask the heavenly father to give you the Holy Spirit and he will. That happens when you pass from death to life. It happens every day after. He promises to fill you with the spirit, to have you controlled and dominated by the spirit if you ask, if you yield, if you want that. To have a life of power as you walk with the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Revelation 5, God has ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, nation, people. We have promises. And we ought to plead with God to follow through on his promises. He's our Father. And God's will is that we lay these things before him. Just remember 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. This means you can pray with boldness, asking God to fulfill his promise since they are already secured in Jesus. So when we pray and we say amen, that's a declaration. Amen means so be it or let it be so. That's our declaration that God, we believe that you will do this, not because of me, 
not because I'm so impressive, not because I have the right method in my prayer, but because of the finished work of Jesus, which is realizing all the promises you have made, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So listen, take hold of the promises of God in your life. I've done it. I do it. You know what testimony of this is my marriage and Rebecca and I, I pray for my wife. She prays for me that we become more like Christ and that we be transformed and we are not the same people we were when we got married in our early 20s. <laughs> we have been radically changed. Our life is radically different. I, if, I, if, the, if the young me met the me now, they'd be astounded because God answers prayer. I've taken hold of God's promises for this church that gates of hell will not prevail against us. That, that God would build his church. Each and every one of you here, right now sitting down and listening to me, is God answering prayer. God builds his church. So take hold of the promises. I know this sounds, maybe this makes you uncomfortable, but again, this is God's will, his vision, that we be people of prayer. One word that, that you will remember, one, one word that the mature will remember as we're talking about this, is patience. Patience. God always answers yes to his promises, but God does not always operate according to our time. And so he might answer your prayer for him to move, for him to do these things. He might deliver on those promises in the next generation or after your lifetime. So Psalm 46.10 says, Be still, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Wait. The promises of God find their yes in Jesus but you might not see in your life. You might see in your lifetime. You should pray, God, in our, before our eyes, in our time, do these things, but it might not be. And so persevere and lay hold of God's promises. And listen, if we didn't persevere, okay, if, if prayer is not something built into the fabric of your life and you didn't persevere, if you just prayed once and God answered that prayer, we would think it was due to our perfect method or our genius or our great faith instead of knowing that we had nothing to give, that it was not us at all. It was totally God in his grace and by his power. Contend for his promises. Secondly, contend for his glory. Contend for his glory. That prayer is always answered with a yes. Now this idea is similar to the one before, but here it's different in the sense that we're praying for God to move and respond in such a way that he is seen for who he is in all his splendor, all his power, all his grace, all his love, all his justice. This is what Jesus models for us in the Lord's Prayer. Father, first thing he prays, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before I get to anything about me, it's all about God and his glory and his name being better than every other name. Even in this passage, John 11, he's praying what? For Lazarus to be resurrected, yes, but for the glory of God. So our prayers must be motivated for God's glory. That's what we're praying for, that God would do that. Now, as we talk about God's, God's glory, what do we mean by that? What does that exactly mean? It's been revealed to us. It's, it's been uh, taught for us very clearly in Exodus 34. God tells us this. This is who, what his glory is, his essence. He says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we're praying, God, I know you're on the edge of your seat to give grace and mercy. That's, that's literally the core of who you are. You are you're abounding in love and faithfulness. And so God, move in our lives. Move around us. Move in these people's lives who, are not, who do not know you yet for your glory so that we can know who you are and see it very clearly. So, two factors, though, as we're praying for God to glorify himself, which is always answered with a yes, Two factors you must keep in mind. First, this actually has to be your motivation in praying. <laughs> uh, it's possible to pray all the right words, say all the right things, but in your heart, it's actually about you. In your heart, it's about your glory. It's your, in your heart, it's about you being needed. It's about you getting credit. It's about you having this predetermined, self-desired outcome. If that's your motivations, really, 
underneath it all, then you should not expect God to answer that request. You know your motivations are pure. You know that you're actually after the glory of God. If God were to answer your plea, but you got no credit or benefit from it. Because it's all about God. My plea, my plea, is that God would bring revival. That, that God would cause a great awakening in our time. I think it can happen. Why not? For his glory. Not my glory, not our glory. For his glory. And you know what I think to myself, to check myself to make sure that's actually the case? What if God did say, yes, for my glory, great awakening happens right here in Annapolis, but through a different church, under different leadership? Would I still be happy? Would we still be happy that God's glorified in that kind of case? It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about, it's not about us. It's about God's glory. Is that your motivation in praying his glory? Second, God always answers yes to his glory, but he might do so in a different outcome than you imagined or even wanted. I think of Paul in Philippians 1 who says, my desire, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with the Lord for that would be far better. That's his wish, that's his prayer, that's what Paul wants. Then he says, but, uh, but I know for your account, for your sake, it's better for me to remain and stay for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul knows that, yes, it's for God's glory. That's a good thing to want, but a different thing happens, and that's okay because it's actually about God's glory and not what we want. So you might have something specific in mind. And as you pray, you may ask God to glorify himself in a certain way, and you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to come before God and say, this makes sense to me. I, this, this seems like this would glorify you, God, but no matter what, at the end of the day, it's about you, and you know something I don't know. You're far wiser than I am. And so I trust you, God, to glorify yourself in the way that you see fit. Luke 18, the story of a widow who kept coming to an unjust judge and she said, give me justice against my adversary. Not a good judge, not a good judge at all, but he was tired of being beat down by her continually. And Jesus teaches this to conclude that parable. He says in Luke 18, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now that's for God's glory. God, do what is just. Do what is right. Do the right thing for your glory. That's a good prayer to pray. And God may do it speedily. God may do it right now in our time. But look what Jesus says, nevertheless, which means on the other hand, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth, which means if it doesn't happen in your time or the way you saw with the outcome you wanted, will you still pray for it? Will you still trust that God is doing something for his glory? When Jesus returns, will he find a people praying for God to be just and do what is right for his glory? Pray, 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 yes, pray. And God is good and may very well may, may give you what you cry for, but sometimes the answer comes in a more ultimate sense, uh, an answer that you didn't see coming. Most of you don't know this. I don't talk about it often, but I had a brother who died when I was 16. He was ill. I prayed, genuinely prayed, God, glorify yourself by sparing him, by healing him. And God did answer that prayer, just in the ultimate sense, in a sense that I didn't necessarily want. But now my brother is in heaven, whole and complete, no longer suffering, no longer ill. God answers that prayer for his glory. And so our job is to be open-handed. God, this is what I want. This is what's for your glory. Please do this for your name's sake. Not my will, your be, yours be done. Contend for his promises. Contend for his glory. Lastly, thirdly, contend with his heart. Now, nothing has taught me more about God's heart than being a dad. And it's not accidental that God the Father has created the family, installed fatherhood into the fabric of reality. We're made in his image and likeness. So our lived experience should tell us to a degree something about God and how he operates. So I'm driving a few months ago. Harper's at this cute age where she's kind of like learning how to talk, using sentences, stringing sentences together. So sometimes she just says something that I did not see coming. Like, where did that come from? So we're driving a few months ago, and she says, Daddy, window? Roll it down. No, Harper, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't know why. I, was, I guess I was in a bad mood. And then, Daddy, please, Daddy, please, please. <laughs> I melted. 
It's like, oh yeah, okay, I'll put it down right now. I'll do, I'm so sorry. Any resistance I had was totally obliterated. And I think it's in moments like that, it gives us a peek into the Father heart of God. And Jesus teaches this exactly in Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know, you, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That teaching, it's not about God's promises, it's not about his glory. It's just talking about God giving good things at your request, God giving gifts. Look, God knows what's in your heart. Matthew 6 says, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. God knows what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're desiring, and so just tell him. And so just ask of him. The father heart of God is a generous heart. Some qualifications, though, okay? Qualifications on this one that are really, really important. Notice that Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. This means we're not just praying once, we're praying repeatedly. We're praying often. Again, prayer is built into the fabric of our life. And that's important because when you spend time in Jesus' presence, when you spend time with the Father in prayer before the Word, do you know what happens? Like, most certainly what's going to happen over time? Your heart's going to be changed to match His heart. You're going to want what He wants. And so ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. And over time, you might have begun praying for one thing, asking one thing, requesting one thing, but by the end of the matter, you might just be in a place where you say, God, I trust you no matter what you're going to give. You know what I want, but I love you and trust you no matter what too. So if you don't give it, God, I'm okay with it. And that's the second thing you have to, you have to understand about praying to the Father heart of God. Sometimes God says no, and you have to be okay with that. The late Tim Keller said this one line that just absolutely revolutionized my understanding of prayer and my prayer life. He said, it's not safe for God to give you what you want until you pray for it. Otherwise, you might miss that that thing is actually from God and start worshiping creation rather than creator. Or it just might crush you because you weren't ready for it, prepared for it, because you weren't preparing through prayer to receive what God might give you. God says no sometimes because it's in our best interest not to get what we want. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, dealing with some sort of physical ailment, and he says, three times I pleaded with God that he would take this thorn in the flesh from me, but God said no, because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. God said no because he had something better, something better he wanted to give. God's still generous. God still gives. God still responds to that prayer, but he maybe has something better than what you have in mind and what you desire in the first place. Parent-child relationship helps us here. A good father, a good mom would never give something to their child that's going to endanger them or harm them or make them spoiled and entitled. Parents give when it's safe for that child to receive that thing or will withhold that thing and give them something better. One other thing that needs to be said here, talking about prayer, asking God to respond. He who's faithful with little will be faithful with much. And so if you're asking God for a good thing, but you're not faithful, you're not faithful in the present, obedient in the present, then you shouldn't expect to receive anything. You will be entrusted with more when you are mature enough to receive it, and maturity is developed when you pray, ask, seek, and knock. So think about singleness, for example. A lot of singles in our church praying for a spouse, good thing to pray for, excellent thing to pray for. Definitely pray for that. But if you're not obeying in the little now, it's not safe for you to have that yet. Why would God entrust you with more men, single men here? If you're not leading yourself already, if you're not disciplined spiritually yourself already, if you're not disciplined in life already, then why would God let you lead someone else and trust you with more? 
It's not safe for you. It's not good for them. So you might want a spouse here because you think it'll improve you somehow. But if you're not striving to like develop those things now, develop that character now, it wouldn't make sense for you to have to be entrusted with more. If you can't be content, holy, responsible now, then God is sparing you and someone else a lot of pain. So the point is without preparation to receive what God might give you, whether it's that thing you want in your heart or something better, he won't give it. So is your character developed enough to receive a promotion without letting it get to your head? Is your character mature enough to get more influence or opportunity without getting consumed by it? Is your life disciplined and arranged in a way that if you get more, it wouldn't burn you out? Is your heart formed enough with contentment that if you did get more, you wouldn't live in excess? Is our church's infrastructure and maturity and character developed enough to receive an outpouring of revival if it were to happen? Or would we miss it because we're not ready to step up and receive that? All of that is accomplished in prayer. The character formation, the maturity, that's happening in the furnace of prayer. So summary, prayer is underrated. Prayer, it's not a side hustle. It's not parenthetical to the mission of God. It is the mission of God. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified and you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. We can have all our strategies, all our plans, all our methods, all our books, but without prayer, we are nothing. I don't expect you to see God move powerfully in your life or in our church if we don't contend with him in prayer for his promises and for his glory and for his heart. Hudson, Hudson Taylor, I read his biography recently. It just revolutionized again my prayer life. He changed by God's grace and through his power. Hudson Taylor was used to change the spiritual destiny of China. Uh, his whole entire mission was survived by prayer. And eventually at the end of his life, he lay ill and all he could do was literally pray. I mean, he was a talented guy, great leader, great preacher, extremely intelligent, but bedridden near the end of his life and all he could do was look at a map and pray. A leader of the Church of Scotland said this to Hudson Taylor, you must sometimes be tempted to be proud because of the wonderful way God has used you. I doubt if any man living has had greater honor. And he replied, on the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough, weak enough for him to use and that he found me. Prayer is the ownership of the fact that we can do nothing apart from God. God will, God, that we need God to move because we can't do it. Hudson Taylor, another time in his life, he had little money left. I mean, little money left, but he decided, I'm going to press onward inland to China and reach people who do not know Jesus. I'm going to do it anyway, even though we're broke and I have no way to pay any of these missionaries. He pressed on. And the reason he pressed on, he said, I'm up night and, pray, night and day praying for God to provide. Can God care less? Of course not. And then he soon after received the exact amount of money he needed designated for fresh work unreached people. Prayer is underrated. Contend with God for his promises and for his glory and for his heart. The third last point here I want to close with is that prayer is a powerful witness. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, Jesus, he could have prayed this prayer in private, and he did pray this prayer in private before, but he stands between heaven and earth and publicly calls on God to do something incredible for the sake of his hearers. You see that? Answered prayer, it's central to God's mission. The world should see our lives, and they should say, I don't agree with them on everything. I don't like much of what they believe, but there is a quality to their life 
that I can't explain except that God must hear them (laughs) and God must reply. And so let me challenge you this, church. Pray with others. When you have something come up, when you have a need, when you have a wound, pray with others. When someone else expresses a need or a hardship or a time of suffering or something good, pray with them. We must make prayer as public as we can so, gl- so that God is glorified whenever and however he responds. And let me just tell you another aspect of, of the witness of prayer, the witness of answered prayer, the power of it. Notice that Jesus, before he prayed, says, take away the stone. And notice that Jesus, before Lazarus was raised from the dead, says, I thank you, Father, that you've heard me and that you're going to reply. Meaning that before Jesus received the actual, tangible answer to his prayer, what did he do? He moved forward and trusted obedience. He moved forward and trusted obedience, knowing that God would come through. Is your life marked by this kind of bold obedience in light of the confidence that God hears you and replies? Imagine like a community of people living like that who really in their bones believe God hears and knows and listens and replies and we're going to move forward because we know his will. That is strong. That gives testimony to God. So if your life feels casual, you know, just powerless, if you don't have awareness of of God moving in your life, are you praying? And are you keeping record of answered prayer? My hope, again, as a pastor, is that we be a community of people, a church of people who are contending with God for his glory, his promises, and his heart, that we would see God do something incredible in us and through us and around us. God, it's incredible. He doesn't need us. He does not need us. But he wants to partner with us and invite us into what he's doing. He wants to glorify himself through us in our prayer. So let's go ahead and close now. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.